Hey, it's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 496 of the Columbia Calling podcast. Yes, I'm back in Bogota after one month away. That's four trips on the National Geographic quest, uh, traveling with Lynn Bland. I was a political specialist and cultural specialist on that boat that did four trips between Cartagena and Panama and vice versa, stopping at places like Lorica in Cordoba, Tuchin in Cordoba, the home of the famed Sombrero Veltiao up in Sapsuro and Capurgana, then uh, San Blas Islands, Panama, where else did we go? Then up to Portobello, the historic town in Panama, Panama City, and of course the uh, canal. So an incredible journey for those who were on it. Uh, each week we had around 60 or 70 guests, mainly from the United States. Good bunch of people. And uh, well, that's about which I'm going to speak today. We're going to speak today about my experiences in Capurgana and Sapsuro, which are the Choco. That's the only part of the Choco department or state which uh, hits the Caribbean side. The rest of it, of course, is on the Pacific side of Colombia. So we're going to discuss that on this episode of the Columbia Calling Podcast because the issue of migrants and migration continues to be a hot topic and no less and nowhere else, of course, all over the world, but uh, here as well in Colombia uh, and the famed Darien Gap, about which I've spoken several times, but today will be me talking about my experiences and uh, doing some investigation there. A huge shout out and thank you to Emily Hart for her amazing work the last month, producing, I think, some of her best work yet in, in her, the Narco Files episode and beyond. It really has, uh, it really is a pleasure to have someone on board who is so incredibly uh, brilliant at her job, and I think you'll agree. Thank you again to those of you who are on Patreon supporting us. There are some new Patreons this week. Um, amazing that people want to support the Columbia Calling podcast. You can find Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling and pledge as much as you want, or you know, as little as you want, uh, and you will make Emily and myself very, very happy and make the podcast continue to be viable. So we'll take a short break, some messages from our sponsors, and then of course the news with Emily Hart, and then we'll be back with me and the crux of this discussing migrants in Capurgana, so on the migrant trail in Capurgana. Thank you for listening and don't go away. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. We are also sponsored by... BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator providing a wonderful range of exclusive small group shared tours for those over 50, along with customizable private tours to both popular and off-the-map destinations throughout this beautiful and diverse country. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a unique 
private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's www.columbiacalling.co, or the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's www.bnbcolumbia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all of your questions and to start the planning of your exclusive Colombian adventure. So that's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your headlines for the week of Monday, 27th of November, 2023. Five massacres and two murders of social leaders were committed in seven different places across the country in the space of 48 hours between Monday and Wednesday of last week. The perpetrators are still unidentified. 150 social leaders have been assassinated so far this year, as well as 86 massacres having been committed, according to think tank Indopaz. Meanwhile, the government is to meet with the ELN guerrilla group later this week in Mexico to unblock the peace talks, which were shaken this month by the kidnap of the father of Liverpool football player Luis Diaz. And during their peace talks with the government, FARC dissident group the EMC have accused two of their own delegates of being infiltrators and deserters, saying that they do not represent them, once again raising doubts about consensus within the armed group regarding the negotiations. Despite this week's spike in violence and hurdles in various peace processes, the Special Peace Tribunal, the HEP, has reported that conflict has de-escalated since the start of this government's total peace policy. Between January and October of this year, there was a near 50% reduction in armed attacks against the security forces. However, clashes between armed groups remained at a similar level to 2022, with a slight decrease of 2%. The armed groups that clashed most this year were the ELN and the Clan del Golfo, followed by the EMC and the Segunda Marca Italia, two FARC dissident groups. Mass force displacement was reduced by 46% in 2023, and community confinements were reduced by 51%. In total, there were 90,000 fewer victims than last year. However, the report also warns of a significant increase in kidnapping and extortion. Meanwhile, President Gustavo Petro has announced that the Commissioner of Peace, Danilo Rueda, is to be replaced as manager of the eight peace processes currently active between the government and armed groups. Oti Patino, who has been managing peace negotiations with the ELN, will now take the role. The health reform continues in crisis after more delayed debates in Congress. Even a private meeting between President Gustavo Petro and former President Álvaro Uribe did not unblock the process. The President of the Chamber of Representatives has given the bill 28 days to either sink or swim. Uribe, meanwhile, has been called to testify about the El Aro massacre after former paramilitary commander Salvatore Mancuso testified against him at the Special Peace Tribunal, the HEP. He testifies that the former president was to some extent responsible for the event, a massacre which took place over four days in 1997 in the Antiochian village of El Aro, in which 15 people were killed. Mancuso has said that the massacre was a direct order from then-governor of Antioquia, Álvaro Uribe, with the aim of scaring the civilian population in the area, which was under guerrilla control. Mancuso claims that not only was Uribe aware of the plan 
and that the two had met in person, but that the operation was carried out jointly by the paramilitary group, the AUC, and the Colombian army, whose soldiers surrounded the village to prevent the Red Cross and other institutions from entering. The governor's office of Antioquia allegedly even provided logistical support with a helicopter. And Petro has announced the creation of a public-private partnership to salvage the San Jose, a Spanish galleon sunk in the Colombian Caribbean by the English in 1708. The treasure on board is valued at up to $20 billion. The construction of a museum and an archaeological laboratory in Cartagena is also envisaged. The decision is, however, somewhat controversial as a large part of the scientific community, supported by the UNESCO Convention on the Protection of Underwater Cultural Heritage, advocates not intervening in the site at all for fear of damaging the ship and the ecosystem of underwater organisms which has formed around it. Additionally, causing years of legal dispute, Spain considers this to be a state ship on which 550 Spanish sailors died. In June last year, the government also announced the discovery of gold bars, Chinese crockery and two new vessels buried in the same area. Latin America has more than 1.1 million climate refugees, according to a new study, which also revealed that the region spends only 0.18% of GDP on environmental conservation, despite being disproportionately hit by global warming, as well as being the deadliest region for climate activists, accounting for 9 of 10 assassinations globally. The report, the Environmental Impunity Index, concludes that climate migration is the most pressing consequence of the lack of political will to take climate action. It reports that 1.18 million people have been internally displaced in the region, nearly half of whom are in Brazil. The figure continues to grow. Those were your top stories for this week. Thanks for listening. And we're back. This is episode 496 of the Columbia Calling podcast. I'm doing a solo effort this week, and many thanks to Emily Hart for her amazing work in previous weeks. I was away for a month, as I said, and that will actually take on the crux of this episode. But at the same time, uh, I was thinking about the times that I've done solo episodes before, and I remember doing one on justice, transitional justice, but most recently I read a chapter from my book, The Mompos Project. It's with an editor right now, so hopefully around February we could be able, be able to bring it out as an ebook and indeed as a paperback. Talking of other books with my little editorial company, Fuller Vigil, uh, well, Columbia at a Crossroads, a social and historical biography, is selling very well as an ebook on Amazon. And indeed, the book that we've launched by Barry Max Wills, that has sold much better. It's called Better Than Cocaine Learning to Grow Coffee and Live in Colombia, and relates. Well, his story in Colombia. And if you look, go back a few episodes, you'll find our conversation with Barry Max Wills there. But in big news, of course, November the 30th is the launch party for the book. That's better than cocaine. It will be at the Casa 7322 in Bogota's Arts District of San Felipe, starting at 5 p.m. I hope to see many of you there. There'll be an opportunity to buy the book, have it signed by the author, listen to a reading, some questions, some drinks, and basically just a good all-round time with people there at this great, uh, I would say, exhibition space in San Felipe. And Barry's partner, Adriano, 
will also, well, his, his work, his artwork, which uh, adorns the front of the book itself, is hanging in the, um, in the space as well. So it's, uh, it's going to be a great night. It's going to be a great fun. I'm looking forward to it uh, immensely. And the, um, well, yes, I'm going to go and pick up the books tomorrow from the printers. How exciting is that? It's all coming together. But as I mentioned before, I'm thinking about the other times that I've done sort of solo efforts. One with the book, of course, the Montpos Project. But another one from many, many years ago was uh, after having gone down to the camp, the sort of FARC's reintegration or uh, camp in Guaviare. And I talked about something that I saw there. And it continues to be very popular. I, I mean, the, the number of the episode... Um, uh, it escapes me, but I think it's Coffee with the Farc is what it's called. And I just sort of, it was an experience that gave me hope for reconciliation more than right now, of course, in this day and age in 2023, November. But, uh, I mean, we can still hope. There's a little elements of life and empathy that sometimes, you know, spring forth like shoots of shoots of hope out there for Colombia and our lives here and the lives of everybody around us. But um, this episode kind of deals with another strong topic, but it's also my personal experiences. And well, for the last four weeks, I've been traveling back and forth between Panama and Cartagena with the National Geographic quest, and which this meant that I was I stopped through Capital Ghana four times. Uh, Capital Ghana, as I mentioned in the introduction, is a small town on the Caribbean side of the Choco Department. Now, the Choco Department, the Choco State in Colombia, is the only state in the country which uh, reaches both shorelines. So it, it has a coast on the Pacific and it has the Caribbean as well. Obviously, the Caribbean side is very small and it's right up there on the Uraba Bay or Bahia de Uraba. So across the bay from Capurgana and Akandi is the town of Necocli. And those of you who've been following the news will know that Necocli is the bottleneck place for migrants who are coming up through the continent to then start their trek through the Darien Gap, through the Darien jungles from that area of Capurgana, Sapsuro, not so much Sapsuro, but Akandi up to Panama. Now, this is a 66-mile stretch where there is no Pan-American highway. You can drive all the way from Fairbanks, Alaska, down to Ushuaia in Argentina, but there's a 66-mile stretch which was left as an environmental buffer zone when they built the uh, Pan-American highway. And it was a, well, it was a pristine jungle. I believe much of it remains a pristine jungle, but it's also been this infamous place. It continues to be an infamous place where migrants now uh, make the pretty awful six-day, around six-day trek from Colombia to Panama, then get processed in Panama, put on buses, buses, I believe, which are paid for by NGOs in the United States, and these buses take them to Costa Rica, where they then get next buses through Costa Rica, and then more complications occur when they get to El Salvador and Nicaragua. But we're dealing with the Colombia element here on this episode, me talking about this, because one of my discussions and talks on the boat to the guests was, of course, about the migrants, because even when we arrived on our zodiacs, uh, on our day in Capurgana, we would arrive more or less at the same time as the boats coming across from Necocli to Capurgana, full of migrants looking to start the Darien trek. 
These boats take anywhere of 40 to 50 people. You see children very young, ages of four, some babies, and of course, elderly people. What was most interesting is that we saw a lot of Chinese people, a lot of Chinese people, and our guests seemed to think at the very beginning that these were Chinese tourists, because you don't get Chinese tourists in this part of Colombia. And it was, and then there was another very good piece in the New York Times about a week ago, which uh, went to say that Chinese people are increasing on their escaping to come to the Darien to cross up, and it's the middle class because they are fed up with the regime and lack of, um, well, the political oppression and lack of opportunities. Well, the, the running theme for all migrants does appear to be the lack of opportunities and, of course, escaping violence, persecution, natural disasters, and so on, civil conflicts. But the lack of opportunities is the thing that really shines forth as the um, current issue that uh, makes, them, makes them want to come, you know, leave everything behind, leave absolutely everything you know and everyone you love behind to make a trip of several weeks or months across the world. And I'm talking about the, you know, the international ones, not the intracontinent ones, not the people who've coming from, let's say, Haiti, Cuba, Venezuela. I believe that Ecuador is an increasing number because of the um, drug violence in that country. But I'm talking about the people coming from all the way across the other side of the world, Syria, Bangladesh, Nepal, China. And then, of course, I've got a personal anecdote about two gentlemen I spoke to from Togo. Of course, I can put Togo on the map, but, uh, you know, I'd be hard pushed to do it straight away. But I know it's right there next door to Ghana on West Africa. But it seems so amazing to me to run into two people from Togo waiting at the dock in Kapurgana. But a little bit more about the Darien Trek. There's been a lot reported about it. Um, the New York Times piece from many months ago was, uh, without doubt, up until this moment, the best piece done. And that's why Colombian authorities will no longer talk to journalists because it really showed them up. But one thing is, one thing's to be sure, migrants get to Nekokli where they're bottlenecked and it's like a traffic jam of migrants staying in hotels, camping on the beach. They have to get their tickets. Uh, you should read the Crisis Group report written by Bram Ebus. And he's done the most complete report. And then there's a Human Rights Watch report about all of this as well, which are great. These two should be definitely sought out by anyone interested in the topic, in this subject at all. So the migrants get tickets to get on boats. Now, the Colombian authorities, at the very least, have got involved to ensure that boats that will be able to make the two-hour crossing, it's almost open water out there, I mean, almost open seas, uh, and won't sink on the way, can take the migrants across. It takes two hours. It costs roughly $40 per person. This is more than 100,000 pesos. And we know what prices are like in Colombia. Colombia may be cheap for us coming with dollars and pounds and euros. But for a Colombian, $40, 120,000 pesos, it's, you know, 160,000 pesos, I'd say, is, is a lot of money. Then they have paid their tickets to go, their ticket to go on the Darien Trail. This is all controlled now by the well, the nationwide crime syndicate that is the Clan del Golfo or the um, Gulf Clan or the Auto Defensas Gaitanisas de Colombia. So they go by these names. These are part of the newly emerged armed groups that have come out of. Well, let's start saying, first of all, it's an evolution of the paramilitaries, those that turned in their weapons, those that didn't, like the AUC that then became the Aguilas Negras or the Black Eagles, then they became the Urabeños, 
and so on. Now they are the Clan del Golfo. They control much of the drug trafficking in the world. And in Bram Ebus's report for um, for uh, uh, conflict, uh, what's it, crisis uh, group, um, it, it showed that the Clan del Golfo are making at least a million dollars a week in the tra in trafficking migrants. Of course, this must uh, pale in comparison to what they make um, what they make in, in in drugs. But equally so, it's a significant portion of money. And I know that in Akandi alone, a small town, three hundred and fifty families derive their earnings from working around the needs of the migrants coming through there. So three hundred fifty families have sustainable income due to the migrant flow. And I would assume that there's a big number in Kapurgana. And now I don't know Akandi well, but I do know Kapurgana. And so they get there and they pay, these migrants pay a further $150, $160 per person to do the hike. This gets them the a guide, and that's a guide in loose inverted, um, inverted uh, commas, because it's a member or someone who works in conjunction with the Clan del Golfo to guide them through. Now, this may mean that this person is, you know, it will murder, rob, rape uh, anyone on the trail and make off with uh, with their wealth and uh, whatever. I mean, you can imagine just how awful it is. But that $150, $160 covers this walk and then they're handed over to people on the sort of Panamanian side. Now, my experience was very interesting to see the migrants on the dock uh, I was observing for, well, on three occasions, three different weeks, observing the flow of people coming through. And then on my final, my fourth week, I managed to get off the boat and out into town to do some, you know, old-fashioned legwork, journalism legwork. So I went around to a couple of hotels that receive the migrants. I went to one hotel which receives mainly Chinese migrants and talked about that, which is very interesting. Uh, and then, but but the key thing was to try and get to the migrant camp, which is beyond the airport in Capurgana, or the runway. You have to take a motorcycle there. And I got up there and I was accompanied by locals and people with connections. And the word was passed on to members of the Clan del Golfo that I was coming. And as we got up there, you know, you started to see the spray paint on the walls saying AGC, Auto Defenses Gaitanistas de Colombia, you know, the, the, the paramilitary group, the crime syndicate. You start seeing that around there. You start seeing it's a different ambience as soon as you get to these areas. And I got up to the camp. And now this is normally, uh, well, it, it's, it's controlled within by the Red Cross. And I say that very carefully. Within the walls of the camp, it's controlled by the Red Cross. But those who control the entry and exit of migrants themselves is the Clan del Golfo. And there they are seated. I went up and the man, even though we passed on messages that, uh, that I would be coming and I would like to ask. And, and it was a whole issue of saying, listen, I'm looking for the human story. I want to hear about the migrants from the migrants themselves, their own uh, stories about where they've come from, what they plan on doing. Uh, what their hopes are, what they've left behind, and so on. The human story, that was what I really wanted out of this. Uh, and we got there, and there were a couple of men standing there with guns very visible in their, in their shorts, you know, just, uh, just tucked into the hems of their shorts, the, the waist of their shorts. And they said, no, we've, got, we've, got, we've received no message that you're allowed in there to talk to the migrants. And, and 
I was expecting to be able to see a camp with tents in there and people cooking, you know, like a like a refugee camp in a way. And yet there was nothing. There were just it was just like a shelter, a couple of small clinics, bathrooms, porta cabin bathroom, and then several hundred Remax chairs, those plastic chairs, so uh, so current in Colombia under a roof. And I guess what happens is the migrants, as soon as they get off the boats there on the dock in Capurgana, they, uh, they are herded together with their belongings onto these sort of moto taxi type things, so like little moto transports, which can fit four or five people in the back. They get bundled into those and then driven up to this place where then they are, registered by the Red Cross, but also registered by the Clan del Golfo. And they're in there, and then I guess they're organized as to when they are leaving on the trek. It does seem to me that people now are leaving. Some people now are leaving at nighttime to uh, avoid who knows what, and that there are a greater number of options uh, in terms of the of the routes they can take. And now that was very interesting to me because one guy said, one of the guides who I managed to speak to, said there was a two-day hike. Uh, and it's very well maintained and easier to do. And the clan del Golfo have it very well protected so that no, there's no robbery uh, and no uh, uh, abuse on that. Now, it was very hard for me to understand exactly how this two-day one, where it set off from. But what I understood is there's a two-day one that seems to, seems to pass some of the worst areas. And then it joins up to the traditional route. That's what I understand. That's what I understood with a conversation with Human Rights Watch. That's what I understood from a conversation with one of the guides. I remain, I remain a little bit in the dark about this and hope to research this in coming weeks because I'm going to write an article for this with any luck uh, for a newspaper in Texas because the story really is when they read it in Texas, it's this marauding horde of criminals and rapists coming up through Central America in these migrant caravans, uh, you know, to, to wreak havoc in the United States. I want to talk about the people all this way down here and again and the human stories. And if the human stories can get across, we start talking about we stop talking about boats and we stop talking about groups of people. We start talking about individuals. And that's my belief towards what's happening in Europe as well. The, not stopping the boats crossing the Mediterranean, crossing the English Tower. It's about addressing the issues of the people. Let's remember that they are people. Uh, so anyhow, we're back to Capurgana, and I'm wandering around. I've already been denied access by these gun-toting um, uh, crime syndicate members up there by the camp. But there aren't too many. There aren't too many migrants there. These these individuals there. I could see some people who may have been Bangladeshi, may have been Syrian. It was too far away for me to see, and I couldn't talk to them because I wasn't given access. So. Not to be put out, I went back to town because they did say to me, the, the criminal, the clandestine golfer said, anyone you talk to in town is fine. Anyone you talk to at the port is fine, but not up here. I guess that's where they, again, like I said, process them for, before they leave on the trek. And you'll have seen photos in all of the magazines. And of course, I always refer people to the article written by Nadia Drost in the California Weekend magazine some years ago. It was like the, the first of all the articles. They won a Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize for it. You can find it online, even though the California Weekend magazine no longer exists. Um, and she did an incredible article traveling 
the the uh, trail with migrants there. So that's the one I advise people to read. But read the long report by the New York Times as well recently. Uh, but what is what was the so I got back to the port and I was a bit oh, okay. What am I going to do now? And then I saw two gentlemen sitting under a tree near the dock, and they clearly weren't from there. They were wearing woolly hats. They had little bags with them, and they were on their phones. So I approached them. And I asked where they were from, and they didn't speak Spanish. So I asked in English, and they sort of, there was an understanding in their eyes. Uh, and then I said, well, you're not from here. I'm English. I'm a journalist. I, I promise not to show your photo or anything. I'd just like to hear your story. And they told me they were from Ghana. And so I was like, okay, from Ghana. That's a long way away. This is a good story. And we started talking in English, but then I realized their English wasn't that great. And it turned out, I said, I mentioned, I don't even remember who it was. I was asking about Ghanaian footballers. And their knowledge of Ghanaian footballers was not so great. And then I said, oh, uh, what about Ade Adebayo? And they were like, no, no, he's from Togo. And they spoke to me in French. And then I realized that was it. They were from Togo. And yes, Ade Adebayo is, is perhaps one of the most famous players to come from Togo who had played at Arsenal and, and Tottenham, I think Real Madrid and, and other places. And so, you know, that smoothed out any conversation and any doubts uh, by them that they might have had about me at this time. I talked about England and I, I ended up talking to them and one of them, whose name was uh, Jufafo Isifu, uh, he had wanted to be a footballer, but he's now 33 years old. Of course, you know, we, we know that that's uh, the end of a footballing career, but he's uh, he's you know he's a, a builder, an odd job man, and and the idea was that he, of course he wants to get to the U.S. I said, any does there any part of the U.S. that you prefer over another? It's like, no, doesn't matter where, wherever I can go is going to be better than where I came from. And I talked to his friend Mamam Abdul Radouf, Rauf, and he's 33 as well, and he was a salesman. Uh, I think I think a traveling salesman in Togo as well. And again, they were traveling together, they're friends from home. And in my very, very rusty French, we were able to converse and I was able to tell them a little bit about what they were about to go through, the 66-mile stretch um, of mud and, uh, well, danger, uh, undescribable danger. And they were very grateful because I don't think they'd had that information. And at the same time, I was able to say, you know, it's going to be incredibly dangerous. Look after one another. And also, like many, they were not entirely sure how far the United States actually was from the other side of the Darien. They kind of thought it was much, much closer. So like they get to Panama, Panama and then it's the US. They had no idea. Uh, they were really nice people. They were really nice guys. Again, that same conversation of the lack of opportunities back home had caused them to do this. They'd come via Ecuador on a direct flight from Istanbul. It had taken them three weeks to get as far as they were now because they'd gone. They don't know how they got through customs and immigration in Ecuador. I presume that the Ecuadorian authorities knew exactly what they planned to do and just said, you know, go because you're not, you know, through passage through Ecuador. They crossed the border into, into Colombia by going round the border stop. And then they came up overland through Coyotes to Caparagana. And I find it very interesting, this entry through, through Ecuador, which apparently is happening more and more, uh, uh, which makes me think as well of the time just before I left for Panama a month ago, I was in 
the El Dorado Airport in Bogota, and there was a ruckus a bit further down. So being the nosy journalist, I, I, I wandered down to the gate where it was because you could tell that the you know, the shouting was different. And there were about 10 or 15 men there shouting, and they were shouting in English, and I went up and talked to them, and it turned out they were from Guinea, uh, West Africa, and they had come from Istanbul direct to Bogota, and they had onward flights to El Salvador and then Nicaragua. And the idea was, well, why won't, why weren't they allowed to fly on with onward flights? Not because they weren't staying in Bogota, but I guess the Migración Colombia was getting ready to uh, deport them back to Istanbul. They told me they'd spent eight to nine thousand dollars each to get that far. Why was it a problem that they couldn't take their onwards flights? And they were saying to me and trying to convince me that uh, Nicaragua is uh, their final stop. And let's be honest, at this moment in time, Nicaragua is not anyone's final stop. They're going up to the U.S. So this was this was very interesting. And I did see a snippet about people flying to Nicaragua to escape going to the Darien. Uh, as well, going through that. But if you have enough money, this is something else I learned, if you have enough money uh, to pay $1,000, you can go on a fast boat, an illegal fast boat from uh, like Capurgana or Akandi or even Necocli, and they get you up to the other side, into Caledonia, Panama. Now, Caledonia is the part where the Scots uh, infamously failed in their uh, settlement of the, uh, of the Darien area back in uh, the 17th century. So, so that's, that's that area. It's called Caledonia, of course, by the Scots. I think it's called something else, but it's in the Gunayala province there. Anyhow, so this boat will get you beyond the Darien, but it's $1,000. And how much have you spent thus far? Well, Mamam and, and Jufafu, who I spoke to from Togo, had already spent $7,000. Just think of how they had to scrape all that money together to get as far all I can tell you is I gave them my email address and I hope to hear from them in a happy situation further on, further down the line, maybe in the United States being processed as asylum seekers or so on. Uh, it would be very nice to know how, how they've done and uh, that they're safe. And if anybody knows anything about them, then that would be great to hear. But this issue of migrants is not going away. It's a global issue. It's not just the Darien. It is also in Europe and beyond. And it feels like we should be talking as if, you know, like 1946, when we discussed like the UN and things like that, this global effort to help well, one and all. Uh, so it seems like we should be all sitting down in, in a big, there should be a, a, a big uh, consortium of thinkers and politicians and private enterprise to imagine how can we help this situation because it's going to continue. I mean, the top ones, if we're looking at in 2023, the number presumed that will have crossed the Darien Gap 2023 alone is up to 500,000 people. Now, if you go back a few years, it was only 11,000 people per year. So last year was 250,000 people. And the year before that, 2021, was half that. But then you go back and it was only like 11,000 a year. We're now up to 500,000 people this year. So what does that mean for next year? Something has to be done. And I know that these countries on the way are just countries of offering passage, but they too suffer from this flow, uh, how, to, how to address the situation. I know that everyone wants to just pass them up towards the US, but 
again, these are people that, that require that require help. Um, I do not have, there is no single sweeping solution and I do not have it, but I think that the conversation should be continued. And well, those are my uh, two cents for this week. I do have some photos that I will put up on Facebook and on Twitter and so on. Um, but I know that you've appreciated this episode. We'll be back with Emily Hart and great episodes next week. I know that she's, uh, you know, she's loading some up as we speak. But I wanted to get this one out there because I've spent, you know, I've just been four weeks in the region watching this and just uh, seeing no possible abating of the situation. And it's all in the hands of illegal, well, crime syndicates and illegal groups. And this cannot continue. There needs to be some global consensus on what to do. So again, this has been Columbia Calling. I look forward to hearing from you and your feedback regarding this episode. If you hate what I say, let me know. If you like it, let me know. Either way. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that's, what it's, that's what it's all about this week. And uh, we're going to go over to some messages from our sponsors. Remember, you can support us on patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. And uh, well, have a great week. And if you are around on November the 30th, come to the launch party. I'd love to meet more of, uh, of the listeners and see, you know, what you'd like to hear from the Columbia Calling podcast in coming months. Thank you again for listening and goodbye. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. We are also sponsored by... BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator providing a wonderful range of exclusive small group shared tours for those over 50, along with customizable private tours to both popular and off-the-map destinations throughout this beautiful and diverse country. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a unique private package of your own just complete the form on the columbia calling website that's www.columbiacalling.co or the bnb columbia tours website that's www.bnbcolumbia.com and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all of your questions and to start the planning of your exclusive colombian adventure so that's bnbcolumbia.com and latin news Dot com. Thank you for supporting our sponsors.